Hello everyone, this is Jack with the Book Club from Hell, and before we start this episode, I would like to make a brief announcement. We have chased meaning away, in its place grows the tower, always expanding and leaving blissfully fulfilled employees in its wake. I am a doctor who specialises in souls, a potent advertising slogan leaves ripples in the world of the spirit. Love is remembered, maybe S was responsible for everything, but who else do I have? Blending Franz Kafka, Mikhail Bulgakov, Jacques Ellul, and Stalker, Shadow of Chernobyl, Tower is a search for meaning in a world no longer organised for humans. So goes the blurb for my upcoming novel, Tower, to be released in November 2023 and available on my website, www.jackbc.me, that is, www.jackbc.me. Thank you. Jack. Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jack with the Book Club from Hell, a Spenglerian accelerationist group seeking to discover a world soul's destiny, reveal it, and force complete actualization, leading to cultural exhaustion and death. In this episode, we're covering chapters 4, 5, and 6 from the first volume of The Decline of the West by Oswald Spengler. If you haven't listened to our first episode in this series, this episode mightn't make much sense to you, unless you already have an understanding of Spengler's ideas. If you like what we're doing, then maybe recommend our podcast to a friend, rate us on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on, or, if monetary thanks is more your thing, we've got a Patreon account. Huge shout out to all our Patreon subscribers, you're helping keep this going. So, if you're still struggling to separate destiny from causation, then listen on. Enjoy. Yeah, approaching how to talk about Spengler is always difficult, because it's just so interconnected, everything. Yeah, his his approach to describing his philosophy is very much in line with his philosophy <laughs> of, of non-linearity. Somewhat being, <laughs> at, at least paying lip service to resisting schematization because it's inorganic, but then having a highly schematized <laughs> way of viewing the world. Yeah. So I was thinking about this recently, how a lot of the people we cover, or I mean, you can fit them all into this schema to greater or lesser degrees of success, where you've, you've got this axis, you've got the autist-schizo-axis. A classic, on end, on a, a universal end, axis upon which every single person in the world can be yeah. placed. <laughs> <laughs> this has thousands of years of data behind it. But on, on the schizo end, it's, it's sort of like the Ilona Selka is the prototypical extreme end of the... The schizo pole of the autos schizo axis, <laughs> where there's just too much meaning found in everything. <laughs> yeah. The the barrier towards drawing connections between different things is probably a bit too low. Yeah. Another, actually, the um, are oh, you you weren't there for that episode when Ed and I did an episode R- on the, level, the, the flat Earth documentary. Oh, That's yeah, also yeah. an example of the the schizo end of the autos yep. schizo axis. It's it's an expansive, connection-laden approach to to overlaying meaning. Yeah, on like the Jordan world Peterson or finding meaning. Jordan Peterson's the world. definitely on the schizo side of schizo. Yeah, he's autist. he's definitely on the schizo end. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas the autist end is more. I think the the Unabomber Sam Harris. Is, he's not at the extreme <laughs> autist end, but he's. Yeah, he's getting there. Where instead of 
extensive. It's very intensive. So you just yeah. <laughs> you try to subdivide each very analytical problem and go deeper and deeper synthetic. and deeper into it. Yeah. <laughs> Where would you say Spengler fits on the autist? It, he seems like he's somehow like bent the axis around on itself. It's now like because he's a superposition of both <laughs> extreme autism and extreme I feel like he's he's bent and warped the axis, so it's now a Mobius stripped, <laughs> and he's just walking around the entire thing <laughs> infinitely. He just there's there's extreme free association. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of free association, but also it's very systematizing. So Spengler's interesting. He's broken the auto the auto schizoid axis. Maybe it's a horseshoe. Like if you go far enough on both ends, they just come and loop back together. So it's actually not an axis, it's just a circle. <laughs> I would say that like the fact that you're can conceiving of this problem as an axis is really an indication of the the soul of the of our culture speaking through Western modern Western culture speaking through in terms of segments and lines and yeah and, and infinite axes <laughs> how it, it it yeah it extends infinitely in both directions and it's continuous presumably you're not this is not a an integer axis this is a continuous mm. auto schizo axis you can be you can subdivide any <laughs> any two people there's an infinite number of variations between those two people on the axis yeah yeah ex- well, precisely that's from the faustian perspective i imagine the classical autist schizo schizo axis <laughs> would have been just Oops. clean integers so maybe a series of buckets within which multiple people could sit which is, I suppose, in some way, How like... How would we map it onto a Magian cavern <laughs> I, or, an, uh, or an Egyptian one? <laughs> it would also be superimposing <laughs> our perception of linear time onto this, like, different hierarchies mm. and conceptions of of the autos schizo axis <laughs> in different cultures. <laughs> the autos schizo axis. <laughs> yeah. I found these three chapters of Spengler easier than the first three because i just i'm much more attuned to his way of of viewing the world and many of these chap these chapters these concepts that he introduces in chapters four five and six map on to a greater or lesser degree to his distinction between nature and history not perfectly, and he does introduce a bunch of concepts which I had to think about quite a lot, like destiny, but it's more straightforward. They're, none of the, these chapters were as bad as the numbers chapter, uh, chapter yeah, two. Yeah, I think I said of the first volume of Decline of the Last At the end of last episode on Spangler, or maybe it was our last episode, our Dawner episode, I was like dreading the idea of doing more Spangler. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I got to say, like, I'm kind of coming around to it now. Like, I'm not like not. How do I put this? It's kind of like reading. I know he's trying to explain the actual world, but it. I kind of get the sense that it's almost like reading mm. uh, the Silmarillion. It's like this fantastical, phantasmagogical, yeah. like cosmos that he's imagined. It's just the difference between. Um, Tolkien and Spangler is that Spangler was actually trying to explain the world. <laughs> Tolkien was just having fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but 
with that being said, like, like it is interesting. Episode, I'll preface all of this with my basically with my only criticism of this book or sort of the the er criticism <laughs> that I have <laughs> the of criticism. all of the decline of the West, which is which is why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But the whole thing is internally quite consistent. It's just it's why couldn't it be different? And it's very it's very easily varied. Yeah, and I can kind of see like when he's talking about stuff, I'm like, yeah, sure, that, that makes sense. And having having said that, I probably don't need to criticize it during the rest of the episode because basically everything I will say, like when we're talking about the difference between destiny and causation. Yeah. My my er criticism, the primordial criticism I have of Spengler is the same. It's yeah, I understand what you're saying. It's internally consistent. I just don't know why it has to be this way. Yeah, so there's yeah, I, I won't like bring up too many criticisms throughout the episode. Suffice to say that like with with a bunch of stuff he says, he doesn't really explain it or justify it. He just says this is the case. <laughs> and you're just like, okay, well I guess it is an inward necessity. If it it is an inward necessity. <laughs> and if you think about it enough, you'll realize it's an inward necessity. I do like that confidence. It's it's, it's inward a very necessity. confident. Yeah, or like book. the self evidence of the manifestos. Like mm. it's it's mm. yeah, so Essentially, with that caveat out of the way, like once you kind of say, okay, what if I just sort of let him have his have his uh have his say, and I'll mm. I'll just go along with it and kind of look past the occasional pot shot at Kant or um or Schopenhauer or whoever he's going after. <laughs> if I just kind of put aside those things and just try to look at, like, the weird stuff he's saying, it's quite a fantastical... What would you say? It's, like, quite... Well, it's obviously mystical. It's very mystical. It's very fantastical. It's very... Uh, yeah, it's kind of a weird... Really fun. He's, he's Occupying this man's mind must have been quite interesting. He should have become a fiction author. He might have created something really interesting (laughs) it's very free associational now we'll talk about prime symbols and things this episode so what i'm about to say will make more context in the will make more sense in the context of having listened to the rest of the episode which is not that helpful (laughs) it is fun seeing him just drawing all of these links between different actualities to use his terminology of different cultures and then explaining why they are fundamentally linked to the prime symbol of of their particular culture that's really fun it's really interesting like in fact him, him drawing a distinction or not a distinction a link between cabinet diplomacy orchestral music and gothic cathedrals yeah <laughs> that's really enjoyable yeah and so one one of the things i think would uh be really so my my girlfriend said that um so she's read is it foundations this found asimov's foundation like girlfriend's a big sci-fi fan um mm-hmm. and she's read asimov's foundation series which if i remember correctly has this like character who is able to predict the uh future of civilizations like thousands of years in advance or whatever and yeah the civilization like I think finds like his writings or something, or there's like the foundation is like this organization that has kept like his 
his scripture alive or something like that. I haven't read the series yet. And she was wondering. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember. I read it a while ago. Isn't it on like opposite ends of the galaxy yeah, or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are foundations which contain the the sum of knowledge or the the necessary knowledge of the civilization that was known by the psycho that was predicted to die. Yeah, and if those would be found, then the the dark age between the death of that previous civilization and the beginning of a new one would be shorter. I'm going to assume that that's true because I haven't read it. I'm purely relaying secondhand information here. <laughs> but my girlfriend was saying that. She was wondering if Asimov was like maybe inspired by Spangler or something like the way that Spang- Spangler <laughs> is is like trying to predict the multi-century change in civilizations using this like quite strange schema of, of, of history, like the the psycho historian in in Foundation. <laughs> I doubt Asimov read Spangler, but <laughs> it's still interesting. He seems to think that. If you if you can if you know enough about the soul that is actualizing a particular culture, and I'll say low C, lowercase C culture, not capital C culture in this case. If you if you're able to analyze it by physiognomically analyzing the actualities of that particular soul, then you can predict its future and you can reconstruct its past. However, what a soul's actualities will look like, or the the morphology of a soul before it is a, it's woken up is mysterious. So you would you'd need to know what that springtime culture was like to to predict what it would be like in centuries or a thousand years in the future. Yeah, Jack fucking loves this shit. <laughs> it's really good. At, at the end of chapter six which was the, the last bit that we will be covering on this episode. He's talking about the difference between... No, he's talking about... And I'll, we will explain what the, the classical pseudomorphosis is, but why, why what we call late... I think it was late Roman culture is not actually of the classical soul, but it's of the Magian soul. And one of the pieces of evidence that Spengler adduces to support this argument or his thesis is that the classical world used the chisel in sculpture, because the classical world was of a soul which denied interiority. It was purely one of the surface, of a, a tactile, sensuous surface. Whereas the Magian soul was one of a cavern. It was in pure interiority that denied the exterior. And as such, in their sculpture, they used drills, because instead of a, a chisel which, which reveals and defines a surface, a drill penetrates the surface. And accesses the interior. And when I read it, it just immediately made sense. <laughs> I thought, yep, Spengler's broken me. <laughs> I think it's actually I can now I can now view the world morphologically. <laughs> I think it's kind of like, yeah, as we were saying, like it's fun if you it's weird. It's weird fun if you just kind of like don't ask why. Yeah. <laughs> And you don't, you don't sort of like yep. criticize. Yeah, it. like you, you just, just go go along with it for the ride. I suppose you could say the same of like Evola and and stuff, right? Like, hundred percent, hundred percent. You can say the same of Evola. As we as we've said in the Evola episodes, if you just accept that he sees certain things in a certain way, and you just take those for granted, it makes sense it's also interesting because he's just full of very similar with spangler he's full of fun facts just about like different cultures 
<laughs> throughout history. <laughs> like, I don't know if they're true. I'm going to take him as like a, a sincere actor who isn't misrepresenting any of the facts that he's presenting about different cultures through different Yeah, cultures. I just take him at his yeah. word. Because um, I don't see uh, what his motivation would be to misrepresent what he knows about different cultures. Um it's just kind of like what he draws out of that body of knowledge. I nothing about Egyptian. Yeah. Music, <laughs> it's just like, hey, what does he do with that information? Yeah. He constructs this elaborate view of like the way that cultures exist autonomously of, of people and like all this sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's hard to see what he's trying to get out of you by saying, oh, well, fourth dynasty in Egypt was where the <laughs> spring, where the Egyptian soul awoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was the springtime of. He's not trying to pull soul. one over you it's by a, like. I don't like. <laughs> why would you be? What are you? Try, you wouldn't be trying to sell me anything by telling me this. Definitely not trying to sell you anything. <laughs> it's a very elaborate sales funnel. <laughs> first, first you instill in someone the morphological view of this, <laughs> then you hit him with the sales pitch. Yeah, yeah. So I think on that level, he's perfectly trustworthy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, this is a very sincere attempt to understand history and human knowledge. Yeah, really sincere. Because it's <laughs> I mean, strange it, and there's sincere. a lot of epistemology in here. Yeah. It is, it's also about human knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just a really wacky system. <laughs> I do, yeah, I don't think he's a bad faith actor. I think he's really trying. To <laughs> he's he's definitely trying. On. Like, he's, he's gone off in. He, Really he's trying for like two volumes. Isn't is is it like both volumes are like together like two thousand pages or something like that? It's something ridiculous. In all, I think it's about twelve hundred. So I've got the Arctos editions. Here, I've got it here. How many is this? Volume one is five hundred and sixty-seven pages, not including the index and some of his his tables. And then volume two is a bit longer. So 500, 500 pages, so over 1,000 pages of him <laughs> trying to explain there's this also, stuff. There's also a typo on the blurb of the Arctos edition for, for volume one of The Decline of the West, which really upsets me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, should, let's talk about it. It's a nice edition otherwise, which is why it, why it irritates me. If it looked like shit, then I wouldn't really care, but it's otherwise really nice. You're going to have such a weird bookshelf by the end of this podcast like if we did this oh, if we yeah. did this thing for I mean, like already pretty strange for like 20 years but, i don't know like what's the longest running podcast like 15 years or something like, <laughs> 20 if we did this years. hypothetically if we managed to fucking do this for like 20 years just so you're gonna have the craziest bookshelf <laughs> i'd be less concerned about my bookshelf and just the the interior of my mind <laughs> just, I, the volume approach to to, to assembling a worldview would be very, very much tested with that, of just reading as many different viewpoints as you can and seeing what happens. Seeing what comes out. <clears throat> yeah, so... Yeah. Um, Weird fiction. This particular episode is about I chapters... I transmute all of this into fiction. <laughs> let's, uh, let's get into it. Uh, this particular episode is about chapters three... Yeah. Uh, sorry, um, four, five... And six, uh, chapter and six, yeah, yeah, chapter four. Let me get up. The is about uh, it's called the pro. So where we left off last time was the problem of world history, but that's actually like a concept that he split into two chapters. Mm -hmm. The first chapter was um, about like yeah. physiognomy, uh, 
And the second one is the problem. Chapter four is the problem of world history, uh, the destiny idea versus the causality principle. Then the next two chapters yeah. that we'll do, chapters five and six, are about a problem that he calls macrocosmos, which we'll get into later in the episode. And the way we're going to structure this is rather than going through the book chapter by chapter, we're going to discuss broader concepts because a number of these chapters will discuss the same concept but from a slightly different viewpoint. I imagine it's going to be easier for us to talk about this in terms of concepts and it's going to be easier to listen to and to understand what Spengler's on about. Also, if we, rather than talking about what each self-contained chapter is is trying to convey, if we just say, okay, this is, well, maybe not what destiny versus causation means, but this is how we interpreted Spengler's, Spengler's concepts of destiny and causation. I was really pleased when he started talking about destiny. And because it's Spengler, his idea of destiny is not what you'd really think it would be, at least at first blush. It's really good. Sorry, there's, I'm a bit distracted. There's a cockatoo pecking at the window. <laughs> yeah, those giant cockatoos down there <laughs> with their beady eyes. Gigantic white parrots. <laughs> those things are huge. Um, anyway, yeah. yeah. So, should we talk about yeah, Disney? Yeah. Well, I'm getting leered at by an Australian native parrot. So I've got quite a lot of notes here, so I kind of have to just like scroll through them and orient myself. So I don't know. Hopefully, if if we edit, if we edit it, like we'll take out. If there's any, ever any big chunks where Jack and I are just like <laughs> re- quickly reviewing our notes, then maybe that'll be edited out. I assume. <laughs> uh, I can start off with I can start off talking about destiny while you look for your notes because I. I have an idea of what he means, and you can you can tell me if your idea of what destiny is is different from how I've interpreted destiny. So, for actually for people listening to this, if you haven't listened to our first episode on <laughs> Spangler, then a lot of this isn't going to make yeah. sense. <laughs> every every living thing has a soul, and this this includes lowercase c cultures. They've also got souls. And this soul actualizes itself into the world. And in actualizing things, it produces concrete things, things of being, no longer becoming. And this process of, of this living culture, of a culture living, this becoming, sloughing off, actualized being, time, that's time. So time is the process of that becoming, continuing and actualizing itself. And from this, he's got this idea of destiny versus causation. And again, thinking back to the previous episode where we talked about the difference between the natural world impression and the historical world impression, where the historical world impression is one that looks at actualized beings, which, which is what we see in the world around us, and physiognomically analyzing them to work out what the becoming soul that actualized them is what what its what its morphology is that's the historical view the natural view however is one that only really arises in civilization it begins to arise after the springtime or the this summertime zenith of a culture and becomes more and more apparent as that culture crosses into the autumn and then the winter of its civilization it's a view which just looks at 
these actualized beings and then tries to draw relationships between those, how they cause each other in a scientific or a mathematical sense with no reference to the becoming entity that actualized them. And we can think of destiny versus causation in a similar way. It's a similar distinction where destiny is, it's basically looking forward in time, knowing physiognomically or through a physiognomic analysis of actuality of what this becoming soul is. And from that, knowing what it's going to do in the future. So he uses the example of Napoleon, where he says that if Napoleon had died, for example, before he he achieved the things that in our timeline he did, because of the the underlying soul that had had woken up, this Western soul actualizing itself, someone else, either an individual or some sort of movement of of multiple people would have come about to continue this process of actualization napoleon's actions were actualizations of the the becoming soul that that was subtending western culture and with within the context of a becoming soul or a, a soul becoming and actualizing itself into being you have individual wills and individuals can can act with free will however so this was interesting his discussion of free will in the context of destiny you can make some decisions but the fact that you are born into a particular society will shape how you will behave and i think even outside of spengler that's probably a fairly uncontroversial thing to say so there's that element of destiny shaping how an individual behaves but then also within a, a soul, a culture's soul, there are certain things that by inner necessity of that soul must be actualized. So this is one of Spengler's assumptions, that a soul, as soon as it comes into being, and we'll talk about the process by which souls come into being. Don't worry, listeners. As soon as that soul comes into being, all of, its, all of the things that will be actualized are present, and they will be actualized in the process of time unless that culture is cut short for for whatever reason that those things will always be actualized because of this inner necessity is destiny and if one person or a movement doesn't actualize those things they will inevitably be actualized by someone else or some other movement it has to happen this is to be distinguished from causation so causation is basically looking at the the being of a historical event and then from that trying to trying to work out which antecedent being so which antecedent actualizations led to it in a causative sense so for example you think about the first world war in a causative model of the world a natural model of the world a mathematized model of the world you could look at the the series of alliances made by various european states in the lead up to 1914 and then you can have a look at franz ferdinand being killed by I think it was gavrilo princip being s- sort of the spark that set it off at least in the 
I'm sure, quite simplified version of events that we were taught in high school. That would be the causative view of history, of just looking at these actualities with no no reference back to whatever being, whatever soul actualized them. So there's no physiognomy. Whereas the the destiny view of it was that for whatever reason, within the Western soul, this massive war within Europe was inevitable. This was always going to be actualized. And if, for example, you didn't have various um you didn't have various alliances or entente being formed between various European nations and then then Franz Ferdinand being assassinated and that sparking it off, then something else would have happened because it had to happen by destiny. So that's the historical destiny view of it, of examining the soul's inward necessity. So that's how I understood his idea of destiny. What about you? Would you almost say that the details, the details that we might use in a causal account of whatever historical events or the changes within, mm. say, a particular civilization or culture, uh, almost um, they're secondary. They're actually not that important. So um, I think he mm. gives the idea of mm. the example of Newton when it comes to numbers. Is like the ideas that Newton had around, I know, like, or Lagrange had around the vector calculus. The vector calculus was going to become into being, whether by Lagrange or somebody else, or whether by like the ideas of Newton's theory would have come into like those mathematical symbols <laughs> and those kind of artifacts of that mathematics mm. were going to be were always were destined to come into being within um, European culture, whether by Newton or somebody else. And it's a historic. It's a it's a yeah. it's a detail that happened to be Newton, but he was just expressing something that was in the soul of the culture. Yeah, it's also interesting too because that it follows on from that that you approach evidence differently. And when I say evidence, that's very much of the natural or capital N natural world impression. But I'll just I'll just say evidence as, as shorthand. Being well, being someone living in the winter of late civilization. I'm, I guess I'm allowed to. <laughs> You're extremely biased here, Jack. Yeah, yeah. Well, almost incapable of thinking otherwise because Spengler is very deterministic when it comes to how someone is able to think. So if you have a piece of historical evidence, so some a corpus of facts, the causative worldview is going to regard those things as, as, as the name would suggest, as the effects of previous causes and the causes of future effects. Whereas the the historical worldview, which which views these things in the concept in the context of destiny, is going to I guess I'm showing my civilizational bias here, at a capital C civilizational bias, in that I regard it as almost he's putting the causation elsewhere. So instead of these these being events in the world that, in the same sense as, as agents within a physics system, can cause, can cause other effects. So they can interact with each other and cause some sort of outcome. In, instead of these historical events causing each other, instead 
they seem to logically follow on from each other because in the actualizing soul that gives rise to them, they're all inner necessities. And they don't happen in a sequence that seems to us logical because they are in the natural world causing each other. It's just because there's the inner necessity within the becoming soul that is actualizing these things. So he's almost placing causation elsewhere. But I get like I'm sure that that is that's a late Faustian <laughs> interpretation of it as well. And we're, people will I think we explained what Faustian meant last episode, but we'll go into more detail into all the various types of Pokemon that you can catch when it comes to world cultures. So I guess I've got here some notes and again, I feel like there's gonna be a lot of this like me and Jack going back and forth being like, correct me if I'm wrong here, because <laughs> I might have misunderstood. Um, but Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it's the also, blind actually, leading the blind I'd on like the show. I'd like to preface all of this, or sort of preface, <laughs> by saying, if anyone listening knows a lot about Spengler or has strong opinions about Spengler and doesn't agree with or thinks we've mischaracterized something that he said, please let us know in Discord or something like that. I actually want to know different people's opinions on what this man was oh yeah um um some who who one of the people in the discord uh shout out to the discord (laughs) um uh corrected us on our mistaken mischaracterization of rothbard's um and the libertarians idea of natural law so we fucked up apparently we don't fake gamer boy no no it was um or dank enlightenment no no it was the uh what's his name he's i think he's called right now like botswald schlangler or something like that uh he's got the like easter island islander um oh trent is it is that trent yeah (laughs) Yeah, the easter island um statue i think that was who called us out it was either that or Mm. Yeah, anyways, one of the like ANCAP types <laughs> on the anyway. Discord. <laughs> um, yeah, so like, yeah, definitely let us know if we, we, we should definitely like find a libertarian or somebody who like explains what the fuck natural law is. Um, but in this case, like, we're obviously going to misrepresent Spangler because, as I was saying before, it's the blind leading the blind on this episode. <laughs> we don't know anything about, <laughs> about this. <laughs> Anyways, I'm an expert on Spangler <laughs> and I'm leading Levi through this book. Um, so I also have this idea here that it's like different cultures can have different orientations or like almost like an emphasis. Um, wh- one being a, a culture that mm, emphasizes mm, mm. the destiny idea, which is like the culture has like a sense of, um, I suppose, like a mission, like a cosmic mission that is fulfilling and whereas like a causal culture doesn't emphasize like a sense of sort of purpose but is more about like uh searching for explanations like empiricism that sort of stuff um and Mm. if we just kind of like like pick a cultures cultures to to um compare and contrast (laughs) favorite words from high school english compare and contrast uh destiny idea culture and a (laughs) causality principle oriented culture um like ancient egyptian culture was like a destiny oriented culture they had like a sense of like cosmic order and their entire society was like oriented towards like fulfilling that cosmic order or like actualizing that cosmic order um in 
in like their social structures and like kind of everything they did. Whereas like maybe maybe the Greeks or the Romans, maybe maybe yeah, maybe the, like the Athenians would be a more of like causality principle oriented. They didn't have like necessarily like a sense of destiny, and even though they still had like religion and stuff, they um they were more like mm. causality principle oriented, and like current Western culture is very causality principle oriented. Uh, this is this is where I'm going to have to politely disagree with your <laughs> <Englishman> terminology. <laughs> At least I interpret it as so. In terms of how how causal a a particular lower C cultures worldview is is more a function of the age of the soul that is actualizing that that particular culture. Mm, 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 so. Mm. I keep saying lowercase <laughs> c and capital C cultures because it actually, at least in the translation I have, that is a it's a meaningful distinction. So a lowercase c culture is just it's basically the the society that is actualized by a given soul. Whereas a capital C culture is the the act the actuality of a youthful soul. And it's within capital C culture that you have much more of a historical worldview, capital H history, one that's much more mystical, one that's much more generative. And then eventually that crosses over into civilization, which yep. is where the yep. soul is growing tired. It, we can go over, we'll go over the, the stages of the life cycle in a bit more detail later, but you, you've got this period where it's sort of content and looking back with a bit of sentimentality in the autumn of civilization and then in the winter mm, it's ex this culture has exhausted its inward possibilities and for a while looks back he calls it with senility and tries to recapitulate the forms of this this particular soul's youth and then dies and just runs out of new actualities and you've just got these dead forms that continue through time until a new culture arises either underneath them in pseudomorphosis or arises and just wipes them away. But yeah, the 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 causation world impression comes about more within civilization. It's more to do with the with the soul's age. Yeah, that makes sense. Contrasting for example the, <laughs> makes the sense. classical soul yeah, or makes the, sense within the context of <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. The thing is to me it really does make sense. Like, that seems like such it's a really clear distinction. But that's <laughs> what happens if you just read Spengler intensely and take lots of notes on him. But the thing is, too, I'm sure someone listening will just disagree with both of our interpretations of this. And as we said earlier, if that is the case, please let us know what you, what you think is going on here, because neither of us are experts on Spengler. We've just read these books. In terms of the difference between, for example, the, the classical soul and the Faustian or the Egyptian soul is that he calls he calls the classical soul a historic in that they don't have a sense of of time as this this long stretch this sense of distance of time he talks about them existing in this continuous mythological present so one one in which if say julius caesar died so the death of julius caesar the death of julius caesar for us for Western Westerners or Faustians is a concrete event that happened a certain number of years ago, 
Whereas for someone of the classical soul, that death, as soon as he dies, he's mythologized, and that myth is always present yeah. and imminent. It's yeah, just yeah. always there in your life. And it's a, it's a society in which drawing ancestry from Mars, if you're Roman, is not ridiculous because Mars within the continuous ahistoric present is always there. It's this mythological present. He's always there as composed as opposed to the ancient Egyptians, which were a strongly historical people who viewed time as a corridor stretching. I don't, I'm not sure if infinitely, but it, at the very least, a long way back and straight into the future. And we'll get into Spengler's architectural analysis and things like that as to how he, he derived this idea. But within such a culture, they, for example, were able to know the, the times between which their various pharaohs ruled and things like that because they documented these things because they had such a concept of almost historical distance as history mm. as a space mm. within which an ordered set of events has happened rather than the Greek closeness and denial of interiority. At least that's how I thought of it. Does, it, does that make sense to you? Um, sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> Spengler is just such a wild ride. Like, I, I wonder if, like... You can say it's, to actually. is it like to how do I put this? I wonder if you could say that he might actually whether or not it's true is sort of a separate question. But like um thinking mm. through like say you were living in um Rome, like having the historical like being in a culture where there is that like a different understanding of history and time and like say like a an emperor that was alive before you were born and died and becomes like deified straight away it just enters like a kind of timeless realm like I, I wonder what that would actually be like would they they wouldn't necessarily have the same sense of time like when we mm. when we talk about say like the romans we have some sense of like well the romans lived 1500 years to 3,000 years ago or whatever the time period was. Like we have this sense of like placing them a distance between us now and them. Mm. Whereas like I wonder if in a culture, whether it's the Romans or any other culture where they had this sense of like almost like the past becomes just quite amorphous, that they wouldn't have had that sense of distance from, from the past. It, mm. Like maybe everything is kind of the same distance in the past. It's just like the timeless past. I don't know. Yeah. Or like there maybe things happened a very long time ago. Yeah, because he talks a lot about how the classical soul was how there's just there's a there's a sense of closeness and a denial of of great distances in the classical soul, which I suppose is concordant with what you're saying. Yeah, I'm just trying to think through, like, if that actually could be the case, that that's how people at least subjectively felt about about their relationship mm -hmm. to the past. Um, yeah, like, I don't have an answer to that question. I, it's just an interesting thing to think about. 
um, the subjectivity <laughs> of, a, of a Roman or something <laughs> in relation to their own mythological mm-hmm. past. Uh, <laughs> um, so have we have we covered that idea enough, <laughs> that distinction between the destiny idea and causal principle, or do we need to? There are a few other things because so the, the difference between longing and dread we talked about this in the last episode when he was talking when we were talking about Spengler's ideas of of basically how history and nature as world impressions arise this how once a a soul is separated from the world it begins to experience a longing for that previous unity and that that expresses itself as a sense of time and a, a sense of becoming, but also the experience of of time, of a soul actualizing itself, involves an experience of impermanence. Because, because every for Spengler at least, in the historical worldview, every moment is completely unique. So there's no abstracted idea of units of time that are interchangeable. And being unique you can never get them back. You can never experience it again. That leads to dread. And this dread, to try to quell dread, we institute a mathemat, we mathematize the world around us. We mathematize the alien to try to hold it in place to make us lose this sense of dread or assuage this sense of dread. So causation and destiny also map onto this. So destiny is, because it is intrinsically linked to becoming is also linked to this sense of longing and so it's this sense of reaching into the future destiny is very much oriented towards reaching to the future in longing whereas causation is very past oriented it regards the past because it has to regard the past because Spengler says that things that have being things that are actualized only exist in the past because the very present is actually becoming, creating being through actualization. And so causation is fundamentally linked to dread and mathematics. That's probably the only other thing I was wanting to say. Yeah, and it's very, again, like you're saying, like linked to like the life cycle of the culture, right? So this is like yeah, dread yeah, yeah. and causation principles linked towards like late stage like cultures or civilizations like the winter or the autumn i mm-hmm. maybe i'm wrong but like <laughs> and, and whereas like longing tends from, to be associated from what with, you said there with like the springtime and like art that is like inspiring yeah and yeah. and um and the destiny principle as then like as the culture matures and starts to decline and become a civilization and be, like kind of go becomes stagnant, it's it's sort of like trends towards a sense of like an emotional, like a cultural emotional state of, of dread. Is that no? Yes, no. Mm. <laughs> maybe <laughs> more. I, yeah, maybe it's the the forms of actuality are more informed by trying to dull this feeling of dread until you get to the point where the soul has died and you're only left with actualities, in which case dread is almost banished. All you have are these these lifeless forms no longer 
no longer made alive by the dread that a living soul or a culture soul would would impart. And is it is it true that not true, but like is it uh, accurate to say that you can have like <laughs> <laughs> caught yourself? Is it is it is it accurate to say <laughs> to represent to say that within this idea of like the the growth and life cycle of a, a culture and a civilization that like a civilization can exist or like for lack of a better word like a civilization can exist even if it's like soul has died and it can persist sort of like mm. almost like an like a like a ghost or so like a um not a ghost but like yeah uh, a shell <laughs> just continuing to with this momentum of of like artifacts being produced or whatever um yeah yeah so the the soul which which gives the actualities their inward necessity is dead and so the inward inward necessity inward necessity being gone all you have is really the causal effects of these actualities of a now dead soul influencing each other we'll talk about it later when he talks about the evolution of art through the life cycle of a particular soul how in the winter of civilization once the soul has died you start getting craft art and art fashions so art is no longer determined by destiny in terms of this inward necessity of a soul's actualization but purely in terms of petty tastes and so the appearance of art starts to vary very, very rapidly through time, whereas previously with living cultures, it tended to be much more consistent because it was all, it was all being actualized in accordance with the inner necessity of destiny. Before we move on, actually, I also wanted to say that the purely causal worldview arises as a function of destiny. So- yeah. If a soul lives for long enough, it's going to die just as a matter of destiny. And that leads to the causal or purely causal worldview or world impression. So it, causation is itself destined. So is, but it's not caused by it's a death. Like it's, it's, it's. It depends what cause. you mean by caused, but. <laughs> or it's just. The inward necessity of like there's the, a culture there's an, persisting for an enough. inner necessity of of a becoming soul that itself in in schematizing the world around it as as a mathematic <laughs> which is which is destined which always happens it will lead to a elements of a causal worldview. So Spengler does in, at one point say that you almost never get just a purely destiny or a purely causal or a purely historic or a purely natural world impression you've got a mixture but as a culture ages or a soul ages it becomes more nature dominant as more of the alien is schematized with mathematics and then i guess maybe it's destiny only exists within the context of a soul or of of a great soul within which human souls exist, and in the absence of that, then you've only got causation. So he he talks about how 
how destiny is always anterior to to causation because becoming is always anterior to being. But I wonder, at least the way he set it out, there is there are presumably times when a soul is dead and another hasn't woken up to take its place. And those times are, seem to be, if not purely, then at least predominantly causal and natural in terms of world impression, mm. which it's, it's chicken and egg then. It actually becomes harder to say which comes first because you, you could then describe the causal world impression as basically what exists when there isn't a soul actualizing itself. Mm. Mm. We need to talk to a Spengler scholar mm. about, <laughs> about these specific mechanics. Is causation merely the absence of an actualizing or is soul? Or is that like we've got some sort of bias in the way that we're thinking because we're trying to map separate cultures and civilizations onto a single uniform schema of history? Like, oh, the Egyptians happened before the Romans, mm, which happened mm. before these people or whatever, where that's like kind of irrelevant that they happen to happen chronologically at different times in history. Or like in, in like yeah. the, the yeah, unfolding yeah. of like physical space time is irrelevant to like the rise mm-hmm. and fall of like the cultural life cycle. Maybe that's our bias coming in there, like revealing us, us, trying to map intercultural developments onto a single sense of history, a single universal sense of history. Mm. Anyway, do you, want to talk, <laughs> do you want to talk about time, space, and depth? Because <laughs> those, those are related concepts to this. Yeah. We talked about time and space in the previous episode, but as a bit of a refresher for listeners, while space is a concept, it's part of a mathematical schematization of sense experience, Time is not something that can be understood intellectually. It can only be experienced mm. because time is becoming. It is not actuality. Time is the, it's the pure becoming of a soul as it is actualizing into being. So time is the unschematized experience of becoming. Spengler acknowledges that even naming this pure experience as time involves a schematization, hence why time, it's sort of just this word to suggest an indescribable experience. I quote, The mere creation of the name time was an unparalleled deliverance. To name anything by a name is to win power over it. This is the essence of primitive man's art of magic. The evil powers are constrained by naming them and the enemy is weakened or killed by coupling certain magic procedures with his name. So even naming time involves, well, it's what we were talking about earlier, about trying to dull this feeling of dread, of watching continuous becoming and a sense of inescapable change. Naming time is a schematization of time. It's an extension of the natural world impression. So... To even call it time is just in some way misunderstand it. It is the experience of pure becoming. Within the context of time, he says there are two ways to approach the nature of time, or two broad approaches, and one is, the, one is that of the realists. And these people could try to imprison the time feeling and subordinate, subordinate it by naming and schematizing it, which leads to the spatialization of time. So... Time being rendered as 
extension which is abstracted. For example, physics time, where a second at one point in time is interchangeable with a second at any other point in time. This is compared to the idealists, who those who contemplate becoming, and examples of idealists are people like Plato and Goethe, and presumably Spengler as well, although he doesn't name himself within this. Time is contrasted with space. I quote, Space object number notion causality are so intimately akin that it is impossible, as countless mistaken systems prove, to treat the one independently of the other. Space is the world of extension, of actualized beings, and actualized beings as they relate to other actualized beings. So it's the natural world impression. It's not actualized being as it relates to the becoming that that generated it. It's an attempt to fix everything in its place. And so I think that's the main distinction between time and space. And it's just worth saying it now because I'm sure we'll use these terms a lot later in the episode and it's easier if people have a, have a clear idea of what they mean now. Is there much you want to add to time and space? Actually, what was your interpretation of what time meant? Because I found the idea of space and extension easier to grasp. Um, well, one of the interesting quotes I have here that is kind of related to that naming quote. So he said, uh, for primitive man, the world, the word time can have no meaning. He simply lives without any necessity of specifying an opposition to something else. Mm. And so I think, I think the main thing that, uh, I also have a thing here where he talks about like time being understood as a vector. So length plus direction versus like time mm. potentially being uh misunderstood as just like a length instead of a vector um without directionality just like a segment um yeah there's not i don't know if there's a huge amount to say about it other than what has has already been said um, oh, he did also want to. Uh, he wanted to say that like the proper destiny and time are interchangeable words. Like these, these ideas are like linked, very tightly linked yeah, to, to yeah. him. Um, yeah, probably. I'm sure it'll come up again as we come back to it, as we like explore other things. Yeah, yeah. And, time, and space is <laughs> space. I just have a thing here that says space is. <laughs> Space yeah. is where time, time <laughs> yeah, is a discovery. Yeah, but that's good. If it, it is. <laughs> it's not becoming. It yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but when yeah. you say primitive man for Spengler, primitive man had a really it had quite a specific definition in that it's the state of a person before the awakening of a a culture's soul. Because when the soul awakens, is when you suddenly get this split between soul and world or between proper and alien in a a distinct way and before before that it's well for people like us it's unimaginable but there's just not the same distinction between ego and world or soul and world yeah i think that's really interesting i think that's what he means by primitive man um so then one of the questions that comes up for me then is like is he saying that 
he's saying like the soul of the culture awakens. So the soul of the culture is not awake yet, but it does exist in some way. It's just like laying dormant. So is he saying there's all these mm. souls that are laying dormant yeah. then, these cultural souls? Is there a finite number of these souls or like – and what – what why why do they come in? dormant because I think he, he references the Russian soul and says that I'm not sure if it's dormant or if it's it's – in a state of pseudomorphosis at the moment, but at least it's not strongly actualized. At least at the time of him writing this, he said the Russian soul wasn't wasn't really actualizing. And does that mean that, like, maybe this is a question that doesn't make sense within his worldview? But like, like where where are the souls, and like, do they come into like being as like mm-hmm. like say like a people split off? Say like some subgroup splits off, say like the Russians or something, like split off, and then like a thousand years later, like the ancestors of the of the descendants of the people who split off are like forming their own culture, or is it like is that like putting mm. too much emphasis on the actions of the people? Is like, and can souls like do they have kind of like mitosis? Like when those populations split, does it like actually split the soul, and then the new soul can like have its own life cycle? with the new population or or would they still be a part of like the previous soul or something like do any of these questions even make sense within the context of what spangler is saying <laughs> yeah there are a few there are a bunch of things there so your point about where is the soul is one that i also was wondering about but i guess to that he'd probably say that we we are late civilization people who operate obviously with a very natural world impression. And as such, we want to try to locate things in space within extension. And so then maybe they exist and a soul, in like a platonic. A soul being an entity which is becoming yeah. won't be, it won't exist in space. It's going to be something that mo- is moving through time. Yeah. And I, like, I, I, like you, have a problem with this in that I think, well, what. Is it? I guess maybe. Okay, how about this? This is a very long bow to draw, and I'm sure Spengler would not be happy with this. But, okay, so think about how information information is spooky in that it, it can be the same piece of information can be physically instantiated in different ways, but the, the information itself, the thing that can be instantiated, it almost exists and doesn't exist. In that you you can have it instantiated in plenty of different ways, and it's conveying the same information. But where's the the fundamental information that that is being expressed in these different places? You can maybe think about a soul actualizing in the same way that the soul in becoming is this information that can be concretely instantiated or is concretely instantiated within within extension. Does that make sense? Like this is this is mangling Spengler. Yeah, I guess so. Like and Popper to try becoming, to smash them together. Is it becoming? Is he proposing? Is there some sort of realm? Well, then I'm mashing Evla into into this world because I was about to say, is there like? Oh is yeah, there, go is there for some it. sort of realm that's like impressing itself upon the changing physical space that we witness within and mm. that we like kind of phenomenologically experience as individuals within a culture 
but there's this other thing in this other realm that's like impressing from the world of uh or just uh, like the world of being in Evelus, but i don't want to bring Evelyn into it well he called it the world, yeah, he of, being, the world of being which is unspenglerian yeah so like it's more like but Okay, so but I guess how do I frame this question without using like a geometrical or like spatial language? Just like in what sense mm, mm. does the culture exist and, and how is it interacting with the world of space-time that we we see? So the, the best <laughs> I can do is that that the culture exists in the same way that un- so information uninstantiated in a physical medium exists. Yeah. So at least in my modern under in my modern Faustian understanding of information is this like information that has not yet been instantiated in a physical form doesn't exist. Mm. And maybe there's a space of possible information, but to say that that exists is almost meaningless it's like yeah sure there's a whole huge combinatorial space in which you could configure any set of like physical components that you might call like possible information but that's it's incredibly easy to vary like that doesn't really help explain anything so um whereas like in order to actually exist like a piece of information has to be instantiated somewhere in the universe in an actual physical medium at least once um even though it has the property mm. of being copyable between different instantiations. Um, but I, I feel as though... Yeah, well, I think right now we're finding the the fairly obvious problems between information theory... And, and Spanglerian <laughs> information theory. Okay, so if I put aside, I don't... <laughs> like, I, I want to make clear, this is me trying to smash together two probably incompatible views of the so world. maybe but even i even think that because information is like a physical phenomena it, but it, like okay so originally like information was like a mathematical theory and it was about like communication over the wire and then as like it evolved and became like more integrated into physics it's like less of a physical theory less of just like a mathematical model and more of like a physical theory and because of that it's it's very like it's it's probably incompatible with the way that like spangler views the world because it's it's very physical and (laughs) and whereas like the the idea of the existence of a of like a culture is not necessarily like a physical a physical entity in that sense. Mm. <laughs> so it might not be an information theory thing. <laughs> the question of where is the the soul, I think is almost an incoherent question. Within <laughs> it was Spengler, I imagine would say, well, it it is not it doesn't exist within extension because extension is a quality of actualized being and a Soul, at least the becoming soul that actualizes, exists as time, not as extension. Okay, here's okay, here's a, here's so a, it's almost here's a, it's almost just a category error. Yeah, so you're, yeah, yeah, you're yeah. just you're asking for a square. Yeah, yeah. So. I, I I think that's that's reasonable. But I'm still I'm still unsatisfied with that as Jack the non Spenglerian. But I think it's a category error. At least that's the best. Maybe I can it's do. like. 
No, I was going to like make an argument from emergence, but I think even that would be constraining the soul to like. But surely there must be like, well, isn't Spangler is almost arguing for like a physics, or not a physics, like but like an an organic a biology of the of the culture, right? So he is arguing that there's these laws to historical cultural development. So, like, they, he, he is assuming that there's these abstract laws that transcend any particular instance of a culture that they yeah. have to conform to. So, I get, yeah. So, wherever, or not wherever, because that, that's, an, that, that's using extended terminology or the termi- terminology of extension, of location, wherever. But well, because it's time, I guess, whenever <laughs> a soul is. Yeah. That... It's not a that it's not a place, but that non-place has some sort of laws that that the Spangler, of course, or understands what those laws are. <laughs> can somehow, yeah, within understand, or at least within each soul, there are there are things the souls must do because when he talks about inner necessity or inward necessity of a soul's actualization, yeah. The souls are, yeah, they're proceeding according to some sort of law. So can I, can I ask a follow-up question then? Like when he says inward necessity, mm. is that? I don't, okay, again, like I've been trying to frame my questions here like not as critiques because we've already sort of set out a high-level critique. So I don't want to get yeah. too critique But I mean, you, I'm just asking We could questions. do it like you phrase it as critiques and I can try to. Well, I guess. I can try to. They're not really. I guess they're critiques, but they're more just they're just genuine questions, like um, that I feel are just unanswered (laughs) or like just come up. Did this guy not ever get somebody who is critical of him to read the book? I think, I think he mustn't have. He must have only shown it to people who just agreed with him, because these are just like really obvious questions. Like, I'm not. I actually don't. Of Spengler's life, I'm pretty sure he was very solitary, at least during the writing of this book. So conceivably, <laughs> like, he was say. just locked in his room and he wasn't talking yeah. to people. When it released, when it was released, it was, it was really big. It was very popular in that a lot of people bought it and a lot of people talked about it. So it would be interesting going back to, particularly, well, translated into English, so German language translated mm, yeah, into yeah. English, discussion in the the first half of the 20th century about the decline of the West, particularly in the 20s and 30s, what people were saying about it. Because I would be very surprised if our problems with it are are sort of sui generis and no one has thought of these things before. I'm sure plenty of people have met these problems. So it would be interesting to see what, what others think or thought. So maybe, do you think maybe it was the sort of book that like a lot of people bought but didn't actually read? So they could just say, like, like at some like cocktail party, that oh yeah, have you read *Decline of the West* by Spangler? Oh yeah, sure, why not? Yeah, yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, like, whoa, yeah, the world's really like crazy right now. The decline of the West and all that. But it's like if they actually read it, they'd be like, oh, this is fucking crazy. It might have been. I mean, I'm sure with any book, there's <laughs> no. It does seem that people were really yeah. reading it and were interacting with its ideas which is good so okay so my question is like yeah i'm not sure i was, i don't know what his editorial process no. was. <laughs> so my question is like when you say like the inward necessity of culture like how 
<laughs> how is that not just something that you can say of any culture and just say like kind of post hoc, just like, well, that was the inward necessity of like what happened. It's, it doesn't feel as though it's actually at all explanatory. Like it can, you can just kind of hand wavingly say that of, well, it was the inward necessity of, of like such and such culture to come up with Newtonian physics. It's like, yeah. <laughs> there are a few things here. So Spengler, Spengler was very confident <laughs> in this work, but he did acknowledge in a few places that it is, it's the beginning of Yeah, it's the Copernican revolution history. of history. <laughs> so there are still plenty of things that need to be worked out. Yeah, pre- precisely. <laughs> there are plenty of things that need to be worked out, presumably by people who would come after Spengler. In terms of the explanatory model, I think he's, he's at least offering the outlines of it. It's just that we don't accept his first principles. So in terms of the inner necessity, presumably later Spenglerian or later physiognomic historians would work out the, I guess to use a natural word, the mechanics of a soul mm-hmm. that, that are the reasons why the soul must actualize all of its inner necessities mm-hmm. in the course of its life. Why that happens, he doesn't talk about here. But I, being generous to Spengler, I think that's because here he was more focused on establishing this way of viewing history for people after him to then fill in. And isn't isn't okay? That's fine. That's fine. Like when you say it's hand wavy, yeah, it is. Like that's it, fine. <laughs> to 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 look at Egyptian history and to say. And I don't want this to, this might come across as dismissive. This was one of the bits about I liked about the book and found very fun when he's looking at the different ways different cultures use columns. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and yet, like, you can say, okay, this is a bit arbitrary to say, like, oh, well, in the classical temple, the columns are arranged as such to deny the interiority, whereas in a Magian mosque <laughs> or temple, they are arranged against a wall to accentuate interiority and deny exteriority. And in an Egyptian temple, they are organized to eliminate peripheral vision and to emphasize a way or a corridor. <laughs> it, it's just said, okay, well, these are actualizations of the, of the inward necessity of the cultures. <laughs> it doesn't really help. Spawned them. It's like you just said some and words. Like you saying it's hand wavy, it's like it feels almost like a cheap shot for me to say, well, yeah, it is. Cause it it just kind of <laughs> yeah. is. It's like he's just decided that. These are actualizations of an inner necessity. How does the inner necessity work? Dunno. Yeah, because you could literally just say that of any instance of like a culture's yeah. like artifacts. It's just a... But anyway, yeah. I'm, again, getting too like critique. Um, like how, how do you get an insight into... Like how do you understand the inner workings of the culture? The inner necessity. Like how do you actually understand the inner, inner workings? So cultures have identifiable forms within them. Yep. And I think his project of trying to unify the, uh, the, the manners, the language, the, the artwork, the architecture, the, the, the way of interacting with, with other groups, all of these aspects of a culture is really interesting. Mm. And there's probably a there there. I would be very surprised if, for example, a culture's plastic arts were 
in no way related to a to the music that a culture yeah. made, to the language in a culture. That's a really interesting project. And I think that's a large part of what he's trying to mm. do with the decline of yeah. the West. And I don't think that's frivolous. But the the mechanism by which he says it happens, that there is a soul that actualizes and as soon as it is awoken or it awakes itself, it has these inner necessities that must be actualized. It feels like he's just come up with that without a mechanism. Yeah. And it I'm just not sure why it's the case. Yeah. This is kind of yeah, uh, this, when you just ask why. We probably shouldn't get into this too much because at the start of the episode, this is just reinforcing what I said at the start of the episode where all of my problems with this book are basically but why. Okay. And that's that's kind of just what we've run into now. It's saying, yeah, but why is this? Okay, the okay, 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 okay. I have a fun thought. Ex- yeah. <laughs> I have a fun thought experiment for you, though. This is this is okay. We're not gonna. I'm gonna pull back on oh, the, yeah, the yeah, reins yeah. of the critique and the way, but wise. But like, uh, but I do have a as okay. If I put on my neo Spangarian hat, <laughs> Spanglarian. Ne- I'm a neo Spangarian. Uh, <laughs> you should be wearing all. <laughs> um, and I'm going to try to think through some of the consequences of like if we were to like. <laughs> carry the torch of Spangler's efforts and like, all right, we're going to continue yeah. this philosophical school of historical analysis. Um, I think one of the consequences of what he's saying is like kind of, it's almost, again, going back to Asimov in the Foundation series, like could it, could it in fact be possible under Spangler's like understanding that if you continued his project to understand the inner workings of cultures and histories and, and stuff more, that there's actually like an event horizon for any person who's going on this adventure of like understanding the inner logic and workings of like the soul of a culture that once you understand that you could actually bring forward all of the knowledge of that culture to like that. Cause then you could say like, well, these are all of the pieces of knowledge that are the direct consequences of these, uh, of I the, the inner necessity of the culture. Saying. There's like this event horizon where you could just bring it forward to like mm. the, the instance of like when you discover the inner logic of the culture. Yeah. <laughs> Is it like a Vladimir Lenin? Sometimes history needs a push. Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. so you could have these like almost like the foundations within each culture could get their hands on decline of the West and Spangler's thoughts and then like commence the project of like accelerating towards so the you knowledge of the horizon this- of their culture. Yeah. <laughs> if we just assume that- That Spangler's true. Wouldn't that just kill the culture? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> So yeah, so if you just assume that Speng- you would just you just you just immediately kill the culture. <laughs> you just, you? Yeah, so you, d- you assume Spengler's true. So uh, what you you're saying is you phys- if phys- if the physiognomy of historical symbols is developed far enough, then you can you can examine the soul of a given culture, see what it will be. Yeah, see everything that it will have actualized. Or will actualize according to destiny. Yeah. And then could you, knowing that, then just actualize them? And then wouldn't that actually and would that just kill the culture? And then w- because then everything will be actualized. And then wouldn't that act in doing that, that would that would actually be part of the inner necessity of the culture for you to have done that. According to what he's saying. <laughs> yeah, so actually 
<laughs> like if you then turn it like if if Newton's working out the the rules of world history yes. does this fundamentally change the destiny of every subsequent culture or would they just not be able to understand it because we're faustians and we can understand it but whichever cultures will be in the future won't understand it and so ah uh, yeah so that's a get out of jail free card that so maybe only these faustian cultures can commit suicide like this mm mm because, like, okay, let's take the his idea with Newton. He said, like, Newton's the fact that it was Isaac Newton is a historical detail. That idea was destined to be instantiated yeah. in that in that culture at some point. And so, if he's discovered this, and somebody picks it up and then is able to, like, have this event horizon of the inner understanding the inner knowledge inner the inner necessity of the culture and then therefore understand all the knowledge that will be created by that culture in the future that itself like that you happen to be the history the neo-spanglerian who did that is a historical act is like a historical detail that's not important but it was always destined to happen yeah yeah <laughs> That's kind of interesting. Imagine that. Then you could have like these kind of like suicide squads of cultures within a civilization that might be like, <laughs> like containing the uh, yeah, accelerationism, Spenglerian accelerationism. Yeah, yeah, Spenglerian should be a neo Spenglerian neo spaghettiism uh, accelerationist uh, cult. Yeah, neo spaghetti accelerationism. <laughs> Yeah. Anyways, that was just one of the, that was just a funny thought when I actually take There's a whole world of possibilities are opening up. Because sometimes right there's a, and I'm not going to go on a Papa Deutsch rant, but one of the one of the interesting things that Deutsch does in his books mm. is he, I call it the the Deutsch attack in my head when you want to when you want to like properly really to like really do an effective critique of like a uh, like a point of view. The sometimes the best way to like critique something is just to take it seriously. And I was like, okay, what would actually be the consequences yeah. of that point of view? And I think one of the consequences of what Spangler is saying is that you could actually do what we just described. <laughs> Potentially, unless I'm misunderstanding something. We need to read the rest of the book. Yeah, there might be some I think that- like way in which like I've misunderstood something or like because we're Faustians and we think this is possible or like something. There might be some out. Mm. But yeah, I reckon that's probably where he'd get you. He'd say <laughs> This can't be understood by non-Faustians. So you'd have to be, and because we're already in the winter of civilization, like our, our souls are already dead. <laughs> so we can't we can't accelerate our souls' demise. So could this happen to every Faustian civilization? Well, there's only one Faustian soul. Well, there was because it's, it's not around anymore. Can there be multiple instances of the same type of soul? No, I don't think so. I think they're they're all unique and particular. Then how are there non particularity is is an aspect of how are there laws of organic development of the souls? Well, presumably, so they're one particular, thing that but he they does, follow laws. I think I think he said he was aiming for <laughs> is that by looking at the souls of all of these different cultures, you might be able to you can work out what the underlying entity is because presumably something is generating these becomings now what is that thing what's this soul that is that's a step below all of these mm. these mm. um yep. these great cultures souls yeah mm. Mm. 
And uh, the, is it then kind of like a um, it's like a Hydra or something? I don't know. Like, <laughs> and I don't want to use the word realm because again, realm sounds spatial, like whatever it is. Yeah. 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 Okay. 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 I feel like we've gone way off track, and we need to like get back to uh, the 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 issue at hand, which is um, what do you want to talk about? You want to talk about depth? Should we? I was going to talk about depth is uh, useful. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to? Yeah. Depth took me a while to work out quite what he meant. I hope I have this right. So he talks about you've got three non-equivalent dimensions because remember we're working with becoming not with being in in being you can have non you can have equivalent dimensions that are just like degrees of almost of freedom for information but in the context of becoming these are non-equivalent so for a soul you've got length which is which is moving through time so actualizing yeah. through time yeah. So you've got length, you've got breadth. A bit unclear as to what breadth is, but depth is really, really important. So depth is, you can think of it almost as this, it's like a mold with, through which becoming passes. So it's this, this sieve that imparts the, the sort of the, the, the shape of a soul as it moves through time. And it's that depth, it's what, that is what gives the shape to actuality from a soul, is that soul's depth. And that depth is what arises when the soul awakens. That's what gives shape to the actualities made by the becoming soul. Jack. That, I had a really hard time with this concept. This is, this is why we're friends, mate. How did you you're, interpret depth? You're a fucking legend. <laughs> The fact that you even managed to like get that out of your mouth is just like so fucking ridiculous. <laughs> I have nothing to fucking add. I, I like yes, sure. Let's let's go with that. I my I guess I I, I have an an interesting follow up is like how does that does that interact with like the artistic expressions like um. Of the culture, those are almost the the impressions of a soul's depth. Yeah, made actualized into being. Yeah, and it's hard using is spatial. I wish I okay okay again not 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 another criticism. This is not a criticism. This is this is a wish list. I wish that I wish that he'd just given like an abstract or like a a summary of his thoughts at the beginning of each chapter. That would have been so helpful. <laughs> he just mm -hmm. said, this is largely what I'm good. going to try to argue. That's what I'm making in my and then, And then he went on and gave the rest of the chapter. Because I just get lost. <laughs> yeah, it'd be good if he... There are just so many times with this book where he'll use some terms which have a weird Spengler yeah. meaning. And then... Like twenty pages later, actually explain what. And they are. this is through when we English talk about pseudomorphosis. Well. That was that was one of the worst examples of it, where he keeps using this term, and then only later he describes what pseudomorph. Or he could have given like a glossary. And it's not that hard a concept. It's just if it's not explained to you, you don't know what it means. He could have got given a glossary of terms, or and then it's made even harder because it was written in German, and then. 
the the English mm. translators mm. have done their best to like <laughs> translate over these ideas. The translator has done an incredible done a really job good rendering. Job. I'm not. I mean, I don't speak German, so I don't know how accurate this is, but I'll assume it's accurate. And the the translator's done an amazing job of rendering this into English. And oftentimes in my translation, at least, like for if it's like a particularly difficult word, they'll put the German word that he used. Not that I'm going to look it up. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. Shout out to word. Konstantin von Hofmeister, <laughs> the, the translator among the editors. What a name. Anyway, so how about this? This is, this is very spatial, a spatial metaphor for what depth is. But it it might help give you some intuitions as to what it is. So maybe, okay, you've got an artist, and pretend that the artist is a, in some way equivalent to a soul, right? A great soul that will then generate a culture. That artist will have some sort of architecture of their mind, a particular way of taking in sense experience and understanding it, and then rendering that into whatever artwork they make, into what they actualize. You can think of depth perhaps as that inner architecture which takes in the sense experience and then actualizes a piece of art. Again, purely spatial example, but that might help give you intuitions as to what depth is in the context of and the is soul. It, as a as a culture matures and declines, it loses its depth. The way I interpreted it was it's almost like the the depth hardens. The depth hardens. So as a culture, you heard it here first. Or as a soul <laughs> the dimension of depth of a culture hardens as it declines. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, as just as it as it ages, yeah. so it becomes like sclerotic. It become it imparts a an increasingly more systematized and mathematical. Yeah, hardens a good word for actuality it. Actuality yeah. yeah, yeah. as it ages. It starts off squishy and then it gets hard. And so the the depth is the depth is fundamentally a mathematizing or an extending property or agent because it it's born when yep. a soul is separated from the world that's the that's the awakening of a soul and that's the moment at which a soul begins to experience longing which leads it to begin actualizing through time as it reaches forward but also instills within a soul dread which makes it try to, to schematize in actualization and hold things in place as these timeless, purely extended laws. And depth is that which gives shape to this schematization. You know what we should do? <laughs> you, about, you know what we this? should I don't know if this is going to help, but I do have a quote. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So, from the moment of our awakening, the fateful and directed life appears in the phenomenal life as an experienced depth. Everything extends itself, but it is not yet space, not something established in itself, but a self-extension continued from the moving here to the moving there. And there's another quote, every extension that is actual has first been accomplished in and with an experience of depth. And what is primarily indicated by the word time is just this process of extending, first sensuously in the main visually, 
and only later intellectually, into depth and distance, i.e. the step from the planar semi-impression to the macrocosmically ordered world picture with its mysterious manifest kinesis. Actually, as I'm reading that, that makes sense to me, but I'd... (laughs) Unless you've read this book, I don't know how much sense it's going to make to listeners. <laughs> That's what reading Spengler's like. Reading Spengler is at first reading that and it meaning nothing, and then eventually getting to the point where you read it and it starts making sense. I think I have to reread it. I think anyway, I'm going to have to literally I've, go back. I've done my best at describing what depth is. I think I'm literally going to have to go back it's, and reread it's the this stuff. Filter, it's the filter of a becoming soul that imparts the almost the topology of actualization upon the things yeah. that are made be is there a better word or, or is there become. a better analogy than depth i don't i don't like depth that much but maybe the like problem the is this is such a, like the- an abstract concept it's almost what could you the mana <laughs> The mana of of the of the civilization, I don't know. Um, yeah, almost the impression shape, but then but impression shape is spatial, and depth is depth. I think spatializes, but is not itself extended. <laughs> and where is Jack right now on the on the schizo autist <laughs> spectrum right now? <laughs> yeah, this is both very autistic and very schizo <laughs> at the same time. This is a, Spengler is <laughs> Spengler is remarkable in that he's he's joined the poles of the the autist schizo axis. <laughs> I I have a weird I mean obviously like as I've already expressed have a number of <laughs> questions and concerns uh, for for Mr. Spangler but notwithstanding those questions and concerns I have a strange sense of like respect <laughs> for, for what he tried to do I've got respect for this project like it's it's really weird just, well if just for so many reasons it's impressive because one it's so ambitious and two the sheer confidence to come out with something this this counterintuitive and to be so confident about it, to say it can't, he fucked up, he got it wrong. Aristotle, fucked up. He was just too natural, too causal. But now you've got me. <laughs> I've fixed it. Let me tell you about depth. Yeah, I admire that confidence. And does he himself, does he view himself as... Like he views Newton as a historical detail that's inconsequential. That the, this idea of the decline of the West would have arisen regardless of him writing this particular book. That these ideas mm. would have come into actuality in our civilization. Presumably, Pres- he must have. Presumably, because the book, the book is, it is quite consistent within itself so you'd you'd presume so it also depends on the particular world impression so if you're viewing this historically yes spengler is he's an agent of destiny he himself if he didn't do it someone else would have if you're viewing this naturally then spengler caused this and probably 
Yeah, he would be more celebrated within a natural world impression than a historical one. So it depends which of those world impressions Spengler would bring to bear upon himself. And then is that in that case, because he's predicting certain things to happen in the next few hundred years, does that mean that it's really like the the culture is making predictions about itself and it's actually kind of it's almost like speaking to the inhabitants of its own yeah, yeah, it, it would be consistent with when we go into the specifics of, for example, the Faustian souls will make more sense. But yeah, if the Faustian soul is as he describes, then that reaching for infinity or becoming aware of its own destiny would be consistent. It's like the Faustian soul is understanding cultural souls as such, including itself. Yeah, as it reaches for infinity. That's pretty cool. I actually like that idea. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like, it's pretty <laughs> wacky. I like, I think this is like grand, like, this is like, yeah. I think you could legitimately use this as like a way of like creating like a fiction video game of some sort or like a fiction novel. Like, having some sort of schema. Can you imagine trying to sell someone on lore? Directly inspired by Spengler, though, how much, how many problems people would have <laughs> trying to work out <laughs> the cosmology of your your two hundred hour CRPG <laughs> based on Spengler talking about souls and prime symbols? I imagine it'd be something like Dwarf Fortress. You know, like, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'd be really good, or like. Or maybe yeah, like Boulder's Boulder's Gate, something like that, where you're trying to like find the Spangler Foundation that's trying to discover all the the inner necessity <laughs> of the culture and and destroy the world, and you're trying to stop them from working out the inner. You're trying to discover the two volumes of the Decline of the West. <laughs> you're questing across the Sword Coast to find the Decline of the West. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> what's some other interesting... Roles. I have some other interesting ideas down here. Um, prime phenomena and prime symbols. Wait, what were you going to say? Uh, I was. I actually think that's a bit... I think prime phenomena and prime symbols is better than what I was going to say. I was going to say, like, actually, let's talk about Apollonian, Faustian, Magian, but I think that would be better to come after a discussion we'll, of primary Yeah, symbols. yeah. Let's yeah. do prime symbol yeah. and then... And then, yeah, what, what the different souls look like. Because also that'll be really fun. But prime symbols is good because it follows on from depth. Because So you got a culture's soul, and once it awakes, once it awakens, it experiences the world as depth. So again, depth as this, this filter that, that shapes pure sense experience or pure experience and gives shape to the actualities actualized by a becoming soul and the structure of depth is a culture's prime symbol how experience is schematized into extension now when spengler says what the prime symbol of a culture is it's almost it it should be very much be taken as a symbol so depth the depth experience of for example an Egyptian is not literally the way. It's not literally a corridor. But that thinking about the shape of the of the symbol almost gives you an idea of what 
in a a non-extended, purely time sense, this depth looks like, or this depth is. I could I can I've got a quote. Thus the destiny idea manifests itself in every line of a life. With it alone do we become members of a particular culture whose members are connected by a common world feeling and a common world form derived from it. A deep identity unites the awakening of the soul, its birth into clear existence in the name of a culture, with the sudden realisation of distance and time, the birth of its outer world through the symbol of extension, and thenceforth this symbol is and remains the prime symbol of that life, imparting to its specific style and the historical form in which it progressively actualizes its inward possibilities. So. If depth is almost this mould of ex- of things that are made extended, the prime symbol is kind of the shape of that mould. It's what unites all of the actualities of a soul. And the prime symbol itself is not actualised, but is operative through the actualities of a culture. And this is why you can examine Should it. Should we give some examples? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the classical soul or the Apollonian soul, the prime symbol is the the close, self-limited and self-contained body without an interior. So the surface of a self-limited body. And this is manifested in many ways. So in the previous episode, we talked about mathematics of different cultures. So classical Euclidean mathematics are are of defined magnitudes in comparison to each other, and it's one without bodiless things like negative numbers or things which are not complete bodies like irrational or things that don't fit neatly into complete bodies like irrational numbers. In terms of sculpture, it's very much, he says, sculpture of the surface as compared to as compared to Faustian plastic arts, which tend to tends to emphasise light and shade using colours on a canvas. The architecture of this soul is one of, for example, a temple where the columns deny the interior. The interior is continuous with the exterior. Everything is an exterior surface in the the classical temple architecture. In terms of their their astronomy, they they denied any... They call it sort of unformed chaos outside of the neatly organized and near cosmos. In terms of political organization, it were these was these small self-contained city states, which could almost be taken in at once, like a like the surface of a sculpture, as opposed to Western cultures where you have these sprawling bureaucratic states which can't be taken in as a single surface. That's that's at least my my sense of the the classical. Actually, it's interesting he talks about tragedy a lot. The the different forms of tragedy in different cultures and how classical tragedy because the classical soul is ahistoric, it takes in history as a single static surface as opposed to the Faustian history which is much more related to to the function, sort of the Faustian mathematical function, this this thing that is 
continuous, always changing. It can always generate outputs rather than being a single self-contained entity. Classical tragedy tends to be that of almost accidents or accidental circumstances which aren't related to the internal development of the people within the tragedy. Whereas Faustian tragedy is about the the inner development according to destiny tragically leading to an outcome. So do do you have more to add about the classical soul? Um no, I do I do have one question though. Like how much did this person read? Like he must have just been a lot reading <laughs> I'm sure he all read a the lot. time. Like to have some working knowledge of just like say Hellenic culture or whatever, like ancient Greece or whatever, um, mm. would have been quite a bit of reading. But I mean, assuming that he did read enough to substantiate his claims, this is like across like quite a lot of stuff. He's across a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to note that I think that's incredibly impressive. What did he do with his time? <laughs> the, 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 the project of the decline of the West is amazing the amount of scholarship that went into it yeah 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 um no i don't i don't think so so like oh here's another thing how with the with their theology or their supernatural world of the the classical soul how it they are very human gods existing in a concrete place on mount olympus Mm. so again it's self-contained and concrete as opposed to to, okay, so the Magian, the Magian Arabian prime symbol is that of the cavern, and he says that Magian monotheism is of a piece with that because within the cavern, so Magian space is such that it's so it's a location, a non-integer location within the context of a cavern, and he says monotheism is consistent with that because it is a single cavern. As a po- and it's dematerialized and emphasizes the interior as opposed to the classical soul, which is concrete and emphasizes the exterior and concrete integers, hence why you have a polytheism existing on a concrete Mount Olympus. What about the, the Western and Faustian soul? I need to go to the bathroom. Can you talk about the Western soul while I yeah. go and do that? So the Western soul is... <laughs> I have a, as I mentioned in my in the last episode, uh, I have a, a symbol of infinity on my <laughs> on one of my wrists, and one of my favorite books is the beginning of infinity. So the Western soul, or the Faustian soul, I should say, is, uh, I suppose, obsessed with, or <laughs> uh, yeah, obsessed with, or um, particularly interested in. Uh, the infinite, the transcendent. Um, there's a, a sense of of upward striving and yearning. Uh, some of the things that reflect this this inclination towards the infinite are things like uh, like the Gothic cathedral, <clears throat> uh, like uh, Chartres Cathedral in France. Um, what other what other examples does he give? Um, the Transcendence of like stained glass windows. <laughs> Jack, you're back. I'm lacking so what? much confidence in what I'm saying. I'm back. 
<laughs> I just have zero confidence in my representation. Infinite space. <laughs> um, yeah, so I say like the the Faustian soul is like an obsession with the infinite and the transcendent. So, um, mm. and then looking at like different what would you say, like becomings or like cultural motifs of or not uh, instantiations of <laughs> of of that of that soul type actualization yeah actualizations there we go <laughs> yeah um yeah the Faustian soul is one that reaches for infinity and is innately tragic because on some level it knows it will never reach infinity that's a good point that's and an innate tragedy intrinsic. Of it. I think, yeah, yeah that's and a good point. But innate to this desire to reach infinity is a an attempt at bodilessness. So, how about we just we go through the different ways in which this is this is actualized? So, for example, the instrumental music of of the Faustian soul is very very important to the Faustian soul. So, these different art forms have differing degrees of importance to different souls. So, for example, for the Egyptians, stonework and architecture was the most important art form for them. And they, they didn't develop, we'll go into what ornamentation is later, but they didn't develop an ornamentation separate from their architecture to a very great extent. Their soul really actualized itself in generating these stone corridors or stone symbols of direction upon the landscape faustian art tended to manifest itself or the art forms that faustian art most potently actualized as tended to be things like music where it's this bodiless continuous sound he was particularly he found chamber music actually particularly important so it's this you think of a bowed stringed instrument. It's a continuous noise. And if someone is very, very good, you sometimes have, and especially if they're playing in a group, you have a hard time hearing the individual moments when someone changes from, say, an up bow to a down bow or a down bow to an up bow. It's a continuous, infinite sound. And if you think about the, the Faustian mathematic, it's one within which between two integers, there, is, there are an infinite number of points. And so within a single bow or th- that continuous noise. Yeah, you have of, both the, say, like, the continuum. Cham- of, of chamber music or Beethoven's last, last works. You've, you've got infinity contained within it. He also uses the example of stained glass in, in Faustian cathedrals, which, which are very, very physiognomically rich <laughs> actualities. How Okay, so the... The cathedral itself, he says, is orienting upwards. So you've got you've got arches with a pointed top, and so the arches they rise from the ground and meet this pointed top, which is directing towards infinity. The whole the architecture of the entire cathedral cathedrals are very high have high roofs, but also, the ornamentation of the architecture itself is also pointing upwards to infinity through the roof. And then one of the most physiognomically powerful symbols in the cathedral is stained glass. How you've got, you've got painting with light 
with this I know it's not you know physics sense immaterial but it's it's this in a Spenglerian sense this immaterial painting a bodiless painting yeah that frees one from bodilessness which allows for infinity there's so much stuff it's as we talked about last time classical math uh classical mathematics versus faustian mathematics how faustian mathematics is defined by the function so you can have for example a circular function like a sine wave like sine x that goes forever you just keep putting in different values for x it never stops another example of infinity which for classical people it's Spengler. I've already prefaced all of this with, I don't know if this is actually the case, but he says so. They just wouldn't be able to understand that. It, to them, would just be, at best, meaningless. At worst, an invitation for chaos to invade cosmos and destroy everything. Yeah, it, there's so much. This was So these bits of the book have, have been my favourite so far, where he's just information dumping. He's law dumping you with all of these different things that... <laughs> That are actualities of these different souls. He's got a good. Um, he's got a good bit comparing the Magian and Faustian windows. I don't mean this metaphorically. He's just for a paragraph. He's just talking about how these two souls use windows. Do you have the and there's a good there? segue into the the Magian soul. Yeah, he says in the Magian interior, the window is merely a negative component, a utility form in no way yet developed into an art form. To put it crudely. Nothing but a hole in the wall. When windows were in practice indispensable, they were for the sake of artistic expression concealed by galleries, as in the Eastern Basilica. The window as architecture, on the other hand, is peculiar to the Faustian soul and the most significant symbol of its depth experience. In it can be felt the will to emerge from the interior into the boundless. Interesting, actually, he also says in terms of, um, of the, the theology of the Faustian soul as compared to the, the classical concrete gods on, the, on Mount Olympus, like this concrete, discrete place, versus the Magian like deistic. Christian or, yeah, or, or Jewish or, or Islamic Persian. theistic god, mm. uh, he, which, which is more in some way personalized and more enclosed. You've got the Faustian deistic god, which is everywhere at once, which has mm. lost its- Which is infinite. Almost all of its the human characteristics. It almost operates like a, a law or just a force. Yeah. It's indefinite. Or, or he uses the example of Valhalla, which, which looks more like a concrete place, but it's actually, it's somewhere indefinite or somewhere everywhere. And if you die yeah. in battle, you just, you go to this- this place slash non-place. I should also say, I'm not sure if you did because I, I was away. The, the Faustian soul is Northern European. It's where it really evolved. He talks about it being a Germanic soul on mm. a few occasions. Mm. Yeah. That's really why he likes Gert. And no? so, yeah, it, it incorporates, say, Norse mythology as well. Do you have a sense of why he likes Goethe so much? Is that, and also, is that how you pronounce it? I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. So much. Like, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, I think that's how you pronounce it, Goethe. Um, I, think, I think it's Goethe, but I mean, I also don't speak German. <laughs> yeah, like, it, yeah, do you have loves, sense? Because he loves Goethe. 
And Goethe is an instance of a Faustian literature, no? Yes. No, it must be. <laughs> well, Goethe did a lot. So I think he was a poet, naturalist, yeah. statesman. He was he was very optimized. <laughs> he was he was a highly optimized individual. <laughs> I I mean so with Spengler, I think so Goethe, I've read very little Goethe. He he liked the being and becoming stuff and liked he called it living nature, what I think Spengler would call history. I think it's it, it, Spengler probably aesthetically likes Goethe, and Goethe said a bunch of things that Spengler just agrees with. At, at least that's my guess as to where the, the intense love of Goethe comes from. So what's an interesting comparison between, like, the Faustian and the Magian? Like, you said the windows before. Would you also, like, compare, like, like the architecture and like the the art styles like you have like islamic mm. art is very like pattern oriented um the magian mm-hmm. soul is like very metaphysically oriented like spiritual like spirituality oriented and magian cultures oh well no sorry there's only one magian culture so is it is it like Sorry, I wasn't understanding this. Is it like you have, even though you have like, say, like Persia and Arabic cultures, like Arabic cultures mm. are like, when I say cultures versus like the Magian cultural soul, is there only, there's only one Magian cultural soul, but then you might have these like different yeah. cultures with a small C, like Arabic culture or Persian culture or like yeah. Judean culture. Yeah, is it? Is that a, a misrepresentation? Okay, so it's not a complete misrepresentation. So then how is it that... No, that's how I understood it. How is it then that a Magian... The, the, there's... Okay. Wait, uh, for listeners, the, the Magian, Magian soul arose... In the East. At, uh, around, I guess, sort of around the year zero, thereabouts, mm. and in the, in the Middle East, and he calls it interchangeably the Magian or the Arabian soul. Important to note that when he says Arabian, he doesn't mean Arabic culture. Within, within the Magian soul, this includes, this includes sort of Persian, Jewish, Christian, post-classical, Manichaean religions. It, it includes Baal cults. Mm. It includes um, the cults of Mithras. includes a bunch of fire cults. <laughs> And is its prime symbol is the cavern, and I think you we can understand ma- the Magian soul by comparing it with the Faustian and the classical, particularly. Mm. So it has this sense of boundedness that's also present in the the classical soul. However, where the classical boundedness emphasizes the surface of something, where there's no in- there's no interiority and there's no ultimate exterior the magian cavern emphasizes interior space so you've got yep. space but it's bounded within a cavern like a outside mosque. of which nothing like is. a mosque is like a and good then example. like the faustian the dome yeah. of the dome of the rock faustian also has this idea of existing in space unlike the classical where you exist on this concrete surface yep. but the faustian safe space is not bounded by a cavern it's yep. 
infinite. And then comparing those two, the Faustian and the Magian, Magian location in space is, it's, it's unlike the classical, it is a location in space, but it's relative to the cavern walls. Whereas mm-hmm. the Faustian location in space is purely relative. You're just relative to something else that is in space, but you don't know where those two relative points lie in space relative to the container of space because there is no container of space. Would you almost space call like the, the idea of the firmament? Like you have the, the cavernous space, the firmament, and the cosmos. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, so it's interesting. Yeah. I, I guess it's almost like you could say like... It's like there's cultures and then there's like a metaculture. It's like this higher level. It's the soul is like the, the, is like the highest level of abstraction above all these like yeah, more yeah. Local, local souls. So it's almost like, yeah, it's really interesting actually. Hmm. More like a typology of, it's like a typology of cultures. So this part is definitely of the schizo part of the schizo <laughs> orthodoxes because this is just making connections with everything, just like reaching everywhere and making connections. But it's also really fun. This is a great part of the book. It's really impressive because he, like, I can kind of see what he's talking about, like, but I don't, like, I should caveat this with, like, there might be a whole bunch of things within those particular cultures that contradict what he's saying that he didn't pay attention to, right? So yeah, he could just be getting a bunch of stuff wrong. Like there's, and he could be making mistakes. But say. he's got enough here where he's he's laying on like say architecture or literature or like, um, and it's, it is interesting how he manages to like correspond architectural styles to like what mathematics are being used in a particular time and place or whatever. Yeah, that's that's really fun. And so you kind of get the sense of like, I, like I sort of see what he's saying. Like, there's this, there there might be like this motif within a set of cultures where mm. where they like this motif cuts across all these cultures. So we're going to like group them into like the Magian soul or something, or the Faustian soul. Yeah, in this very strange strange way i guess so that that idea that central idea that there there's some sort of abstract uniting force between different forms of cultural expression i think there's something to it but i do think cultures can influence each other which he he rules out quite explicitly rules out that possibility i just i just don't think things are as discreet as he says they are so did you are we did you get a sense of like how far how much further have you read have you read further than macrocosmos 2 <laughs> that's a cool actually that'd be a good name for like some i've, read a bit further. I've been reading music in plastic too. yeah um macrocosmos yeah <laughs> oh, did. yeah there are a bunch of metal songs called macrocosmos yeah actually <laughs> um anyway <laughs> I'm, sh- I'm sure a bunch of metal bands have been inspired by spangler yeah, the penny hasn't dropped really by his Wikipedia page. It was like how these souls interact with one another. That's the thing that hasn't they that hasn't dropped. The yet. only way in which they do, and this isn't strictly a soul interacting with a soul, but a soul interacting with the actualized, made become 
yep. of another soul is in pseudomorphosis. And actually, while we're discussing the Magian soul, we That's can talk about point. pseudomorphosis because this is a. We've mentioned that a number of times. This is one of his examples of pseudomorphosis. So, pseudomorphosis is basically where you get a you get a soul awakening, sort of underneath the the dead detritus of a mm. former soul, underneath yep. the actualized being. Of a soul which is now dead. So, in the case of the Magian culture, the cl- the classical soul had died in the late Roman Empire, and what we call the late Roman style, where we see there seems to be some sort of resurgence in architectural and artistic and philosophical and political output, is actually because you have the springtime Magian soul. Awakening, so coming to life, this new vigorous soul that is actualizing itself in the world. But because it awoke in a world dominated by the the actualized forms of the now dead classical soul, mm. it takes those forms and starts using them. But it uses them to a with a completely different meaning, and that is pseudomorphosis. It's when a soul uses the forms of another soul to express something different. So, for example, because yep. he, he loves columns, he froths <laughs> fuck over columns. <laughs> so you imagine in the classical world, columns were used to deny interiority, whereas in the pseudomorphosis of the Magian soul, you had these columns ordered against a wall. So. Instead of denying in uh, interiority in the Magian pseudomorphosis, they are denying exteriority. That's 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 what he says. That's what. So, to answer your previous question, I don't think two souls interact, but or at least don't interact directly in terms of their becoming. But one soul can interact with the the become. I think souls of- can interact with the being with the actualized being of other souls yeah an example of which is pseudomorphosis and is it is it only characteristic of they tend to do this during their decline adopt or is it that they can do it when they're awakening like is when the romans did it Mm. it was was it they're, they're imitating the Greeks because their culture is in decline. I think so. With the Greeks and Romans, I think they were both of the classical soul. Yeah. So it's they're just for whatever reason that soul's destiny was to have these different small C civilizations, not civil, not capital yeah. C civilization, but small C civilizations. Yeah. These different branches of it yep. being actualized but i think it was the same soul whereas with the magian okay. and the classical so okay so how depth is basic it's this way yeah, i must of, be misunderstanding this then <laughs> of, form, of of ordering experience and so you get this this raw input of experience and it goes through the the depth filter and that makes actualities According to the the destiny of the the soul that is becoming, 
it's almost with the classical pseudomorphosis or the Magian pseudomorphosis, the world uh, that it was actualizing into was full of these classical forms. Yeah. So the actualized forms of this now dead soul. And it just it ran them through the, the so Magian the- depth filter. And out of that came things that had that looked somewhat like the actualities of the classical soul, but they were imbued with a different meaning because of the Magian soul. So the pseudomorphosis. Just, I, I catch myself saying this and realizing how schizophrenic it sounds. So <laughs> I think it makes sense. The pseudomorphosis is happening at the level of of the soul, not of like specific civilizations necessarily. So like, yeah, yeah. yeah so, 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 so like the Greeks and the Romans were both classical civilizations. Mm. So therefore, a civilization can. Like there's a civilization, the civilizational stage of a culture, but the soul that's generating that culture could have multiple civilizations, is what I'm picking up here. In the but the so soul itself is, can die. Part of this is a terminology problem. It's like yeah. between the difference between capital C civilization yeah. and capital C culture, which are stages of a life cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then lower sea culture, lower sea civilization, which are like the the mean the meanings that we give the, to them in everyday speech. A yeah, a, a, an actualizing soul can have multiple small c civilizations, yeah, like different so, so different linguistic groups or something, yeah, that are like actualized the Romans from and the Greeks, but it only ever has one culture and one civilization. In that, the Greeks seemed to be the culture and it turned into Roman civilization as the yeah. as the the soul aged. Okay. Whereas And then that okay, died. Okay. So the, the 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 soul was dead. Yeah. And you had yeah, yeah. you had the actualities f- from the dead classical soul that the springtime magian soul started taking in and kind of digesting. Yeah, yeah. And then actualizing and that's the pseudomorphosis. Okay, so that weirdly makes sense. Um, I mean, like in a very strange, <laughs> in a strange sort of way. Um, <laughs> I, it's just, it's just complete moon lodge. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wonder then, and this again, this is not really criticism. It's just a question that comes to mind. It's more like, what, what does he think of things like, say, like uh, Ptolemaic Egypt, like where the it sort of like was it sort of Cleopatra or maybe just like a bit before Cleopatra, like they started being like Egypt, late stage Egyptian empire was like kind of colonized by Greeks, by the Greeks. And like what, in, what the, oh, what the, I wonder if- what the interaction is there that's going on, you know, cause you've got this like late stage civilization that's in decline like Egypt, but then you've got this thing that's in like the more vital earlier stage of like the, mm. the, the um the sorry which 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 soul is it again the 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 Apollonian soul is like in ascent through the yeah, Greek yeah. culture, <laughs> whilst the um whilst the what's the Egyptian soul then the Egyptian soul would be 
We've got the Apollonian. Just Egyptian. Yeah, just the Egyptian. So the Egyptian soul is in decline. and It's just called the Egyptian. Yeah, yeah. the Egyptian soul yeah. is in decline whilst the Apollonian soul That's is in a That's really interesting. And then the- because then the Roman civilization, which would be like the late stage Apollonian soul, did also completely like encompass Egypt mm. as well. At which point would you say mm. that the maybe the Egyptian then- soul is completely dead and, and it's just like the 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 becoming ha- is just like that's the as you said like the word they used before was detritus the detritus of the dead Egyptian mm. soul is just being like that is just being. Used now physically process. by the Roman civilization, by the Apollonian late stage Apollonian soul. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know enough. About, I don't know <laughs> no. enough about Egyptian history. I know so little that I can't. I don't know if what I'm saying is historically accurate in a causal sense, but in the sense of, in the sense of destiny, perhaps, maybe, maybe the Egyptian then capital C civilization was dying or dead, but was its forms were in some way revitalized by pseudomorphosis of a living Greek yeah. culture yeah. using those forms yep. for a new classical meaning. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that's- <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because like even you could even look at like- <laughs> I'll take that. Cleopatra married like a Greek general or something, right? And like- or am I fucking that history up? I feel like I'm fucking that up. Um, anyways. Was she, was she fucking Mark Antony? Yeah. Yeah, both. I think there was an issue. Why like she, she was like I don't in know. bed with like actually, one of the generals. I actually don't know. I think I got that from Shakespeare, who was an infallible <laughs> historical source. Because <laughs> those sorts of interact. Because then also. things up. You, <laughs> you can also ask the same question of like, what, what about when <laughs> like. Hannibal, like, entered into, like, India. And was it India or, like, and that would have been, like, a Sumerian civilization interacting with, I suppose, the, Apo- the Apollonian. Soul. Yeah. Hmm. And uh, so I guess my question is really, like, what's this interaction when these two, and they might be at different stages in their life cycle, but, yeah, like, how yeah. do they... And so maybe this is a this is a something that he'll answer later on, potentially. Maybe, but uh, it's just maybe an interesting it's continuous pseudomorphosis in the. Mm. So I'm pretty sure within the Spenglerian context, those of different souls just cannot understand each other. Not fundamentally. So you yeah, can yeah, get yeah. some of the way towards understanding it, but not truly. Yeah. So maybe it's. The interaction is pseudomorphosis, how <laughs> they take in... So, say mm. with Orientalism yep. as an artistic movement in the West, yep. artists of the Western soul saw the artwork of East Asia and were inspired by it and so took in those forms but then used them to express fundamentally Faustian concepts in pseudomorphosis. Yeah, maybe maybe the interaction between different souls is always pseudomorphosis. Yeah, I I mean we're only up to chapter six, so some of my questions might actually be answered later on potentially. So I, I, that's why I'm not trying mm. to 
frame them as criticisms. I just guess that's, I think, so definitely I, what I would say is that pseudomorphosis is one type of interaction that can occur or interplay that can occur. Um, but are there, are there like other ways in which they can interact with one another is something mm. I'd be interested in. So let me look at the next, the title of the next chapter. What's the next chapter called? The next chapter is like, uh, music and plastic, music, music and plastic, plastic art form, soul, Im and then later on we've got a soul image and life feeling. Hmm. And then we've got Faustian Apollonian nature knowledge. Hmm. Yeah, I have a feeling that like maybe some of my questions will be answered or at least we might be able to extract some answers out of our later readings. <laughs> like when I say the chapter or title of like what about we quickly Apollonian run Faustian, like maybe he talks about that, the interaction between those two. Souls. Yeah. What about we quickly run through the other the other cultures and their their prime symbols? Like the Egyptian. I think I mentioned earlier how their prime symbol was the way. It was a corridor. And they have an extremely historical world impression. So driving towards the future and being able to look back on the past as one would sort of back through a long corridor. I I quote the Egyptians' ex existence is that of the traveller who follows one unchanging direction, and the whole form language of his culture is a translation into the sensible of this one theme. As we have taken endless space as the prime symbol of the north and body as that of the classical, so we may take the word way as most intelligibly expressing that of the Egyptians. And this was expressed almost all in stone, just something, something eternal for all time an unchanging long corridor and their art was all it it never separated itself from architecture so spengler said that architecture is the sort of the prime art form of a culture's soul mm. in the, it's the first one the ordering and mathematization of space mm. and eventually as a culture's soul gets older in all cultures or in all souls except that of the Egyptian, you get ornamental arts that separate from architecture and begin to, to exist independently of it, mm. but not in the Egyptian sense. All of their ornamental art was subordinate to architecture. So mm. their sort of their pictorial art was architectural. Was temple wall relief. Mm. Yeah. And it's always it it's always organized in a way that draws your gaze across mm. the the relief as in a way and leads down the temple corridors. And he says that as the Egyptian soul got older older, the it's almost the the three dimensionality of these reliefs flattened and they tried to get it as close to purely two dimensional as they could. <laughs> I I have so I have like random highlights here. Like, I'll, can I read one bit that I think hmm. maybe just yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. I don't know. It's just interesting. <laughs> uh, it's the, the Egyptian soul conspicuously historical in its texture and impelled with primitive passion towards the infinite, perceived past and future as its whole world. And the present, which is identical with waking consciousness, appeared to him simply as the narrow common frontier of two immeasurable stretches. The Egyptian culture is an embodiment of care, 
which is the spiritual counterpoise of distance. Mm. Care for the future expressed in the choice of granite or basalt as the craftsman's materials, in the chiseled archives, in the elaborate administrative system, in the net of irrigation works, and necessarily bound up therewith care for the past. The Egyptian mummy is a symbol of the first importance. Mm. The body of the dead man was made everlasting just as his personality, his, quote, car, was immortalized through the portrait statuettes, which were often made in many copies and to which was conceived to be attached by a transcendental likeness. The Egyptian denied mortality. The classical man affirmed it in the whole symbolism of his cultures. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, I've, that I, mm. I should just say, it's just like, like, there's instances where there's just like, a lot of highlighting, and I, I I always feel like when I'm doing that, it it almost loses its ability to help me because <laughs> there's just too much highlighting. Just like this is a random like <laughs> stretch of like, but I uh, that was just a good example of like uh, I think like would you say his method, his methodology of like pulling in? Yeah, here's like a whole bunch of instances of this pattern expressed in like a cultural motif. Yeah, and that's very characteristic of how he writes that quote. <laughs> or yeah, of, of his methodology. So it's like it's like it's like he's saying, here's this soul idea. Or like here's his soul and here's something that it cares about. Or like here's a here's a here's a primary axis of the soul's thinking, for lack of a better word. And then like here's how it mm. expresses itself in a bunch of different like forms in the culture so like like the mm. rejection of mortality and the obsession with the infinite takes its form in like the corridor and the mummification and the use of granite instead of something else like here's a whole bunch of ways yeah I, <laughs> so yeah, yeah yeah i think that's what's going on yeah it's it's a wild ride <laughs> Oh, yeah. We've got the Chinese soul. Yeah. He keeps talking about the soul of the Chinaman or the Chinese soul. You got you to gotta smile it's when prime somebody is- speaks about the soul of the Chinaman. <laughs> it's the Tao. The Tao. The so, like the Egyptian soul, it's, it's highly historical. But unlike the Egyptian soul's way, which is straight, it's a straight corridor, this is like wandering through a temple garden. And that's not my. The image I'm, I've come up with. That's that's Spengler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and he says actually for this reason because nature guides the meandering, um, Chinaman to the future, and as a result, the landscape features prominently in Chinese architecture and art. And gardening is a grand religious art in Chinese culture, but not in the actualities of of other cultures' souls. And then actually, then there's the Russian soul, which. Spengler, at the time of writing, he said it was the Russian style is still sleeping and has yet to find sure expression in religion or architecture. But it, the Russian prime symbol is a plane without limit, but it's a flat plane without limit. And one that, for example, in architecture emphasizes the roof as this flat thing, this flat plane. But the, the Russian style is still, there's still pseudomorphosis with the Magian style, particularly the basilica from the Magian style. And while the it is it's a pseudomorphosis, so 
unlike the Magian style where, for example, the domed cupola uh, emphasizes an interior space according to the prime symbol of the cavern. In the, in the case of the Russian soul, emphasis is increasingly placed on the roof as something which emphasizes a flat plane, but it's still emerging. Okay, what have we... Symbol, we've gone over that. Macrocosm, actually. We can define macrocosm quickly. A macrocosm is basically the actuality of the sum total of all symbols in relation to one soul. Yeah, so that's, that's macrocosm. Do you want to go into detail on imitation and ornamentation within the development of a soul's art? I don't think I have the literal capacity to do that. He, <laughs> he spends a lot of time on it, but I'm just not sure how important it is. Maybe in a subsequent episode, it will become apparent that it's really important and we need to understand it. But at least so far, I found it interesting, but it's not hugely important. Maybe just really quickly, like in the context of a soul actualizing itself as art, you can have imitation or imitative arts or ornamental arts. Imitative arts are those that bring someone into sort of the same direction as the becoming of the soul that is actualizing itself into these arts. And this can be things like folk dances, oral poetic traditions, group song, things like that. Things that draw different people into a feeling of oneness. And these tend to be dominant in earlier stage um, in cultures, basically, capital C cultures. Ornamental arts are those where an individual impresses a symbol onto the world around them and makes it being. So while in imitative arts draw one closer to becoming, Ornamental arts impose being upon the world. There's, uh, there's more I can go into, but I th- that's, that's just the main thrust of it. <laughs> oh, man. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's, that's the Schwengler experience. <laughs> I just feel like... It's like... just so alien to me. Yeah, I think it just I think like for, over by a truck. for part three. So this until will, suddenly you just understand it. I think this will well if we're doing three chapters per. This is going to take another two episodes, right? To yeah, 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 yeah. I'm going to have to like reread these first because it's it feels as though like yeah, I just like <laughs> I've been conquered by Spengler. <laughs> I think the first. <laughs> I think the first. Maybe two, maybe three chapters, maybe two chapters in particular, like contain, like now that we're getting further into the book, you can see the extrapolation that he's pulling from like the earlier, earlier in the book. Yeah. I feel like I almost will have to like go back, reread those for the next episode for it to hopefully set in. <laughs> I feel like. Getting a grasp, once I got a grasp of what soul and world were, being of, of proper and alien were, and being becoming history nature, everything that comes after is him just kind of stacking things on top of those. Do you want to keep going with stuff? Like we can talk about the different style phases of a culture, like what it's springtime, summertime, autumn and winter 
basically look like. But we've also, I mean, that's sort of been implicit in what we've said this episode and last. I feel like. Or it's been two and a half hours <laughs> and we could stop. <laughs> I feel like the coffee's fading and I am lacking enough confidence. This is this is the first book that's like given me uh, enough <laughs> <laughs> enough of a beating like since uh since Evla that I, I do need to go back and like read Evola. it properly. <laughs> read it like to a level where I feel like I've got my head around it. Or I still just don't feel like I've got my head around it. <laughs> mm. Um yeah. So that's that's uh yeah. It's just such a weird book. It's a really weird book. This has been a humbling, a humbling experience. <laughs> <laughs> like it's got these <laughs> moments of like like uh like really interesting um like for example that that Egyptian um quote that I read before um or the one the some of the quotes that Jack has read out where you're like oh yeah that's really interesting but then you're beating like there's just like this wall of text to, to, to like get through these, these like comparative mm. and uh, like, what would you say? Associative thinking at times. Um, yeah. I think. So. <laughs> I guess if anyone's listened this far, I guess I, here, here are my tips for reading Spengler or Evola for like, for the few people who are still here at like two and a half hours in. I found if I, I just have to leave what I actually believe at the door when I come into Spengler and just try to try to accept as truth what he's talking about and then things start making sense and just in terms of the mechanics of how I read it like I read I have a hard copy and I go through and make lots of notes and things and underline stuff in the margins of the book and then I go back and make notes based on what I've underlined and the things I've written in the margins yeah, yeah. And I found particularly when I'm re when I'm going back over it to make notes on it, that's when things really start to make sense. Yeah, this might not be amenable to like the digital approach. So like I've found that in the past when I've had a really hard book, I've I've had to like order the hard copy. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like scribbling all over books, and that's what helps me understand things. Um cool. So then should we put a pin in this particular episode do you reckon so next episode would we pick up from what do we got here next episode we can do music we can do music and plastic one and two yeah then after that we can do soul image and life feeling one and two yeah and then the an episode after that can be Faustian and Apollonian, Apollonian nature knowledge. Actually, I think that would be better to, yeah, to encapsulate those double chapters as single episodes rather than cutting across. Yeah, you episode. want to do that? Yeah, I think that, that would be better. <laughs> and also it's slightly shorter yeah. than trying to do three chapters. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Next episode I'm pretty sure is on urine therapy as <laughs> – a natural addendum to Spengler. <laughs> I'm hoping that <laughs> urine therapy will not hit me for six. 
like I've been hit for six by Spangler. (laughs) (laughs) I would be very surprised if urine therapy was considered really conceptually difficult. (laughs) How hard can it be to learn why people drink their own piss? It depends, like, what their writing style is like because you could still turn that into, like, a Mm. Hegelian analysis of urine consumption or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, you could do it if you wanted. (laughs) The world spirit compels me to drink my own piss. I wouldn't even be surprised if that actually exists. Yeah, it might happen. Um, And if it hasn't happened, either we can make it or generative AI gets good enough that we can just ask it to write us the phenomenology of spirit, but about drinking your own (laughs) wee-wee. I feel like we're attracting, by the law of attraction, we are... What's that word? Uh, like actualizing? No, no, no. Um, manifesting. We're manifesting it. <laughs> We're, We're manifesting. Manifesting, <laughs> manifesting uh, what we want. <laughs> time and spirit, except urine analysis. Um, okay, so should we <laughs> should we wrap it up? We we'll that. <laughs> and then I think we have a My Little Pony episode. Yep. And then more Spengler. Oh urine man. <laughs> Bronies Spengler. Oh, man. No, yeah. Go, go oh, my God. Go together really oh well. <laughs> I just can't even do this. I'm just by the end of this year, I'm just going to be completely, completely cooked. I, the ideas floating around in my head. I'm trying to keep some semblance of sanity by doing, like, normal people stuff <laughs> during the day. <laughs> It's the Levi pseudomorphosis because while you're actualizing the exterior <laughs> forms of normal people stuff, the inner motivating principle is that of urine therapy, my little pony and Spengler. <laughs> I guess this is really, we're really embodying the name of our podcast now. <laughs> we said, what, what are you reading right now? <laughs> Oswald Spengler's The Decline of the West, Urine Therapy, The Water of Life, and. My Little Ponies, and recently, what else did we read? Furry Jack, Furry Jack, Jack, Furry, Furry Jack. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Christian Furry web comics. Yep. Totally fried my brain. And in amongst there somewhere, we're going to read Tower. Wow. <laughs> and, and hopefully hopefully that's the yeah. the yeah. best of them. Look, if I rank you anything lower than second this out of all the books. This is a plug for my fiction in that these are the inputs. These are all the inputs and then the output is well, my most Well, okay, so novel. to be fair, when you started writing Tower, that was before we started the podcast. Tower wasn't written actually when the book club from hell it, was it a predates. thing. I, I did do later edits of Tower. Yeah, so it's yeah, kind of like yeah. the basis was beginning. You put it in the oven before Book Club from Hell, mm. but then when you took it out, you sort of like gave it some dressings and stuff with Book Club from Hell influences. Yeah. yeah. Hypernormal, which is a manuscript I have that I want to get, you know, I want to run by an editor. Is that 100% release. book clubbed? Uh, maybe in a year or so. You started development? That's 100% book yeah, clubbed. So that one's going to be the weirdest then I assume. <laughs> I'm writing a manuscript at the moment, which has been... Not only completely written during Book Club from Hell, but the more more mature Book Club from Hell. So post evolving, uh, and that's a uh, 
in terms of actualities, that's the, the most influenced by the book club. Yeah, I suppose world. if you write more and more books and we continue doing the book club. The book club from hell, world soul. I mean, there's so many questions here. Like, maybe I should save all of these questions for when we talk about your book being released. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's do that. Because <laughs> surely there, there's yep. this okay. book. The, like, yeah. Thanks for Anyways, listening, yeah, everyone. We'll let you go. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha.